I would say most things are bad. Like, just think about it. most. This applies not just to art, but even products. It applies to, you know, if most things were good, you know, it would be, the world would be a totally different place. The truth is it's hard to make something good. And, and that's, if you look at any art form, it's not like most paintings that people paint are not great. Most of them are terrible. And then some of them are good. And once in a while, someone paints something great. And a movie is, is like a painting that has to be painted by 2,000 people over the course of many years. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado, this is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman. And on today's show, we're going to talk with two well-known Hollywood screenwriters, Mark Hyman and Zach Penn, and hear what it takes to make a career telling stories in the movie business, why so many movies turn out poorly, and why, as humans, we are so drawn to story. This episode is very personal because it's the story of two people who were very impactful to my life and that time of life where some of the biggest impact happens. I think it's appropriate now to start back with with my story a little bit and have always had this love of movies. That's how my dad and I connected. And when I left the University of Michigan, my film professor at the time, Frank Beaver, he handed me a piece of paper with a list of names on it and said, go out to Hollywood, young man, call these people, make a career. And I ended up going through that entire list, starting with the most famous people like Lawrence Kasdan at the top. And I ended up all the way at the bottom and no one called me back until finally one day uh, a guy named Patrick called me back who's a dear friend of mine to this day. And I ended up at Disney Imagineering where they make all the theme park rides and animatronic characters. And I was working on an Ellen DeGeneres movie uh, for the Energy Pavilion at Epcot. And my job was to drive film around between Technicolor and Deluxe. And what that afforded me was a parking spot right on the Disney lot right next to Ellen. And I would pop into the offices of different producers on the Disney lot while film was waiting to be processed or for me to pick it up and, and do my job. And and one day, one of the producers there, a guy named John, again, slid a piece of paper, just like in a movie, across a table and said, call this guy. And when I called that number and I went in for the interview, that happened to be Oliver Stone's production company, a company at the time called Illusion. And I interviewed and got the job as story editor. And that really changed my life forever. While there, I met another guy named John John Krause. And John, once again, knew that I wanted to be a screenwriter. I had just written two scripts for Oliver's company. And again, the, the piece of paper slid across the desk and he said, call this guy. And that led me to his one-time roommate and new darling of the time screenwriter, Mark Hyman. And Mark had just sold a script, Osmosis Jones. And that's where I first met the characters of today's story. And so I started working with Mark as an assistant writer and a writer's assistant. Osmosis Jones was going into production and the producer was this, this up and coming, very hot, well-known writer named Zach Penn. That, that's where we all met. And there are experiences and people in your life that you don't always appreciate at the time, especially when you're younger. And it's only with experience and hindsight that you're able to look back and realize how lucky you were to meet, collaborate. And, and work with certain people. And Mark Hyman is, is one of those rare friend mentors that, that I don't see or I didn't see as a mentor because I didn't even know what that was at the time. I, it was just this guy who was an amazing friend and teacher and collaborator. And Zach has always been this generous friend and mentor as well. And my job with, with the, these two guys was often very much like the way this interview you're about to hear goes down. Lots of laughter, exploring absurd ideas, and talking story. And I'd be lying if I say I didn't miss it. We shared an office bungalow at 20th Century Fox. Supposedly it was Denzel Washington's old office. We would lunch at the commissary and walk the studio lot every day. And it's a lot like you see in the movies. Big studio sets, workers carrying huge scene paintings across the lot. There were no crazy car chases where people crashed through them. But other than that, just like you pictured. 
And Mark and I would spend our days writing in the mornings, bouncing jokes around, then eating at LA iconic spots like Carney's, Barney Greengrass, Apple Pan, or Greenblatt's. That was pretty much the rotation. Osmosis Jones was one of those great learning experiences in my life, and I got to rub shoulders with comedians like Patton Oswalt, Chris Rock, and the Fairley Brothers. In addition to the movies we talk about in this episode, Mark Hyman and I wrote jokes for Rockstar, Dr. Doolittle 2. We worked on scripts for Jim Carrey, Will Ferrell, and Adam McKay. We took crazy meetings that I can't even disclose and talk about and so, so much more. And Mark and Zach are going to talk a lot about this time and compare it with the current climate in Hollywood and really give you a sense of, of, of how the industry has changed. Mark Hyman got his start writing Osmosis Jones, and in addition to the writing credits I've already mentioned, his writing credits include Universal's Meet the Fockers, Paramount's The Perfect Score. He wrote on DreamWorks Animation's How to Train Your Dragon, Madagascar 3, and has served as a script doctor for more than 40 produced movies. Zach got a fast start, as you'll hear shortly, when he sold his first script, The Last Action Hero. He went on to write such well-known films as X-Men 2, X-Men The Last Stand, The Incredible Hulk, and The Avengers. Many people know him for the quirky comedy PCU, and his credits are actually way too numerous to list here, but he's also worked with A-list directors Woody Allen, he co-wrote the story for Ants, and lately he adapted the Ernest Cline smash hit Ready Player One into a screenplay, collaborating with the legendary Steven Spielberg. I am so excited to have Mark and Zach on the show together. I love their relationship and friendship. There's true mutual respect in a business where that's hard. Even in private, behind closed doors, when the other is not in the room, they are complementary of one another. And that represents staying power. They are not flash in the pans or one-hit wonders. They are working writers in a business where it's really hard to have that title. This is a longer episode, but it's worth it. Oh, and the first voice you'll hear after mine is Mark Hyman, and then the next voice is Zach Penn. And this is their story. So we're here with Mark Hyman and Zach Penn, Hollywood screenwriters. And Mark and Zach, we're here to talk about your life and story and, and your story as uh, screenwriters in Hollywood and your evolution to both uh, well-known working writers, uh, very established, very well-known in the movie industry. And so I'd like to go back to the beginning. Uh, were you guys always writers as, as young kids? I started writing when I was eight years old and um, I stopped when I was about eight and a half. And then when I heard that you could make a living at it, when I was 21 and a half, I went back to it. How did you, how did you hear about making a living? Who told you that? I, I, I was in uh, New York with a friend who I'd went to college with and she was 21 and she was dating um, a guy who was a writer on Saturday night live. And um, he took us out to dinner and to a nightclub and he paid for everything, including the taxis. And I was so impressed that after the, the weekend, I asked my friend how he had so much money. And she said, because he was a writer. I said, Oh, <laughs> and, and his name was Rob Schneider. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So Rob Schneider effectively yeah. got you into the movie business. Well, and the other thing was that as I asked my friend, I said, do you think he makes like, like what, like 450 a week? And she said, I think he makes at least 750 bucks a week. And so it was like, it was like, that was the number when I was 21 that like, if you could imagine making that much money that, uh, you know, that, that I had to get into it. I also thought that nobody else had ever thought of becoming a, a comedy writer. I thought that like, I thought that it was a wide open field because it would never occur to anybody. So I was, I was a little naive about that. Yeah. When did you realize that wasn't true? Uh, as soon as I got, got to Los Angeles. <laughs> Zach, Zach, were you always a writer? Or did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Well, my story is almost the same as Mark's. I had a friend who was dating Rob Schneider. Uh, no, um, I started writing pretty young. Um, I, I started writing plays when I was about 10. Uh, which were great, as you can imagine. Uh, but I, I've actually always been writing my whole life, and I wrote plays in high school and then in college. And I'm kind of like, uh, you know, if you read like a Malcolm Gladwell book about, you know, who is perfectly designed in terms of experience to become a writer of the movies that Hollywood makes now, I like read comic books, played video games, and just wrote. So, it's pretty much been lifelong for me. Do you remember the name of that first play you wrote when you were like 10 and what sure. it was about? Oh yeah. 
course. Uh, Inspector Fang, or maybe it was called Fang. It was basically a murder mystery. It was 10 minutes long, and I think it had 40 scene changes. It was terrible. And then the next year I wrote a parody of the Academy Awards, which uh, it's insane that my school agreed to put either of those um, things on as the class play, but they did. So those were your first produced works. That's incredible. Like, were you in, uh, you were living in Manhattan at the time, correct? Yes, I grew up in Manhattan. They must have been a forward uh, thinking school to allow those two productions to go on stage. Uh, not, not really, actually, not at all. In fact, it was, it was, that school was kind of Alan Stevenson, which is where I met the Whites brothers, actually, um, who might eventually come into this story. It was not at all. It was based on a British boarding school. When I was in high school, I wrote, at Trinity, I wrote a play uh, set in a Carvel about an omnipotent guy who works in a Carvel that was kind of an absurdist. I wrote a lot of absurdist stuff when I was younger, and I, I actually grew up on SNL and, you know, wanted to be a comedy writer as well. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I've just always been doing this, always been watching movies and grew up around people. Who, my parents watched tons of movies, so... Both of you guys got your start at a young age. Can you can you both take us back to that moment individually when you kind of had your first break or you, you had your entree into the business? Um, Zach, you, why, why don't you go? Well, go first on this one. Sure. Okay. Sure. Um, well, I, I'm waiting for mine. Okay. Um, <laughs> Me too. Uh, I moved out to Hollywood with uh, a guy named Adam Leff, and we had committed at college to being writing partners, and pretty much. I guess about six months after getting out to LA decided to write this script that at the time was called extremely violent, but ended up being last action hero. And that script uh, got us an agent and it's old and it got made. I guess there's interesting parts of the story, but from the standpoint of uh, struggle or anything that you could learn from it, you know, we got very lucky very quickly. So pretty much a year out of college, I was, uh, a professional screenwriter, and that's what I've been doing since. Like, how'd that go down with you and Adam to like make that pact? Was that like a blood pact, or like what does that look like? We sacrificed a child, you know, as you do, <laughs> as Mark and I did many times. Oh, yeah. um, no, we we just, you know, he was uh, a friend of mine at college, and we had similar taste in movies, and we just said, let's give it a go. And we wrote a script, our first script we wrote in about seven days, and our second script took us about two months and then we started on last action hero and that got us you know we had a bunch of friends who were assistants around town they gave it to a bunch of people we got an agent uh, and our agent sold it in a bidding war uh and then they got made so you know then we got fired immediately so you know that was the turn in that story right after that we pitched uh pcu which got made as well. So right off the bat, we got very lucky. Yeah, starring Jeremy Piven, who now is resurfaced as the you know face of Hollywood as the evil, evil agent Ari. But what was the idea for Last Action Hero? Do you remember when you guys came up with that? Uh, I remember when I came up with it. It was I was <laughs> sitting at Adam's house, and I said, uh, I think we might have been drinking, and I used to carry a dictaphone around with me, which I would get mocked for, you know, mercilessly. And I said, uh, reverse Purple Rose of Cairo, Cade goes into action movie. And then a friend of mine picked it up and said, worst idea ever right after that. So I saved that for a while, but, but that's where it started. And then Adam and I ended up doing a lot of research. We watched every action movie. We, we filled out charts. We watched every Steven Seagal movie, which was, took us a while to recover from. No, I mean, we were pretty serious right off the bat. We came right out. We... You know, I came to L.A. for a semester while I was at college at Wesleyan. I came out here thinking I was going to move out here after college and that I ought to prepare myself. And I think in retrospect, I did a lot of things like that, not realizing this was a pretty, pretty smart move on my part in retrospect, because I just was ready the day I got out here to get someplace. So it worked. Yeah, it sure did. And and sounds like you have a master's of Seagal. So I'm pretty impressed that. Oh, yeah, uh, I do. You, know, did you get your, your advanced degree in, in Seagalness. Let me, I'll just give you one fun fact from that. If you watch, uh, I think it's Out for Justice. I forget which one it is. 
we realized from watching it closely that at the end of the movie, you realize that none of the people that Steven Seagal killed in the movie actually had anything to do with the kidnapping of his niece. And so therefore, it's really the story of a guy who goes around murdering 40 people who don't deserve it. <laughs> He's the villain. Oh, damn you, Steven Seagal. <laughs> it's like it's like if the end of, of the Michael Douglas falling down, you find out that he wasn't really fired, like it was a mistake. He, he read, he read the <laughs> Maybe that's how they came up with that movie, right? They were watching out uh, out for blood or out for justice, and said, oh, "Only that's this." Actually, that's yeah. definitely how they came up with that movie. <laughs> only only this time he'll actually do the thing. Yeah, I wrote in college. I wrote a. Um, I, I I I saw a movie that influenced me greatly called um, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and then I saw. Um, big top peewee and so i wrote a, a peewee herman spec script um called gang bang where peewee takes on a, a group of um like a, a comical la street gang because back then you know the bloods and the crips were a very new thing so i thought it'd be timely and i wrote a comedy about peewee versus the street gang which was sort of in the death wish mold in a way that was like the first structure i ever wrapped my mind around was like the death wish movies but um and so uh, I, I wrote i wrote that then i wrote some some uh like a married with children spec and a Seinfeld spec and a Roseanne spec. I came out to LA and I got a job as an assistant for about on a, on a sitcom as a writer's assistant for about a year and um, on saved by the bell. And I sort of got an agent and met people and looked around and I, I, I picked up a writing partner and about a year later, maybe when I was about 22, 23, I was on uh, writing kids shows, was on writing on staff on like a Nickelodeon show. And then the season after that on a show called Sweet Valley High. And then the season after that on a sitcom. And then I actually um, started working with Zach on a movie pitch idea called Fish Out of Water that we sold uh, myself as a writer, Zach as a producer to DreamWorks. And I guess that was my first break into screenwriting. But for me, it was sort of maybe all of my early 20s, sort of year by year, step closer, step closer towards this goal of being a writer. And, and so it was sort of a, a nice walk that was uh, every year there was something to make me think, hey, you know, push on. You've got more contacts. You've got a better script. You know a little bit more about the business. And, uh, you know, and gradually I got there. Uh, do you ever miss Sweet Valley High? Because I know I do. Yes, I, I, compl- I it, it was, it was a wonderful job being out in the middle of, of, yes, I, I, don't, I don't, I mean, you know, I mean, in, in honesty, you know, I mean, you know, you, you, you have a bunch of, bunch of good looking teenagers running around and you're, you're uh, writing lines like, uh, I don't remember what a Sweet Valley High line would be like, would be like, you know, oh my God, it's the annual, it's the annual, you know, beach party beauty contest and, you know, and, and she thinks she's going to take my boyfriend and then we would just go from there. Um, <laughs> And so how did you two meet? So, you know, for the listeners uh, out there, uh, you know, these aren't two disparate uh, personalities. There's a connection here. And so how did you and Zach meet? I think I know exactly how we met. So I'm curious, Zach, Zach, do you remember like why and how and all of that kind of stuff? Okay. So we, we were at the same bar and I had met a really good friend of Zach's, a girl named Annie, who he'd been to college with. And I, I thought she was pretty cute. And I'd seen her at parties. And uh, I kind of went up to, she was with Zach. And she was kind of a girl you could have a very fun, like flirty rapport with, right? So um, I w- was talking to her. And then the conversation led to talking to Zach. And Zach was a very social guy back then. He would always have parties. And, uh, you know, it was very, he was very accessible. And um, before I, I guess, just kind of started to see you around a lot, right, Zach? And uh, and we became friends through Kayla. We then I started to write and date for a while this other mutual friend, and um, I just kind of fell into orbit with Zach. Yeah, that, that's pretty much accurate. And, yeah. uh, and you know, then Mark one day, uh, you know, it, even back then, just you know, because I had started out and Adam and I had gotten someplace pretty quickly, a lot of people. You know, as soon as you get a job in Hollywood, and certainly as soon as people start hearing your name, everybody pitches you ideas all the time. And, you know, Mark was one of the first people who pitched me an idea that I immediately liked. You know, it wasn't obviously that night, but he said, oh, I have this idea for this movie. And he pitched me Fish Out of Water. And it was just one of those ideas where I I was like, that's amazing. I think if I remember correctly, Mark, I think literally like, a few days later, I was in a meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg and I pitched him the idea and he said, great. He said, that's great. Let's do it. 
I, I think I think it happened. I think it happened within a week or maybe even three days. I, I, th- I think that that I pitched it to you. Possibly the next day, you pitched it to Nina, Nina Jacobson, who you know what I mean, or, or like yeah, somehow it was, we exactly. had lunch, and then you guys all somehow somebody pitched it to Jeffrey. Maybe after. Remember, we all went to lunch at Sushi Nazawa. You mean yeah. me, and uh, things happen fast. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, sometimes when I talk to screenwriting classes. Uh, one of the stories I tell is about fish out of water, which is, you know, the, the log line of which is that 500 million years ago in the primordial ooze, uh, a stubby little fish named Darwin races to become the first fish on land. And it's like the right stuff meets the theory of evolution. And, and by the way, all these years later, that's how easy it is to pitch. And one of the points I make to, you know, students about Mark's script is that even though that movie didn't get made, although it got it got bought or optioned many times over the years, if you can imagine, if you're someone who's reading samples of scripts and every single one is like die hard on a ship and die hard in a closet, and then you get this script that first of all is short because it's an animated movie, which is shorter, but also is so insane right from the opening page, you know, in terms of what it's about and so funny, that that's the best sample he could have written. I mean, really, you know what I mean? People are always saying, oh, write something that is definitely going to get made. That's a pretty unlikely movie to get made, you know? But it served Mark so well, I think, and I'm sure Mark will back me up on this, because when people were going through a pile of scripts, there was fish out of water. And how could you not be, it's like reading a college essay. There's one that's finally different. So uh, I think it's advice that people have actually learned over the years. And the blacklist is a good example of that, of, you know, you write something really unusual and it gets you attention, but yeah. Yeah. But back then, back then it was a lot, it, it, it was much more rare. Everybody was trying to write like genre things like uh, everybody, you know, all of our friends are writing spec scripts that were like, um, you know, the, the bad news bears with soccer, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Right. And, and, and it was certainly, counterintuitive. I mean, you, we sold it, so it was different. Mark did to write it, but either way, you know, the, the irony is like, I got more work off PCU than I ever did off Last Action Hero. Nobody ever hired Adam or I uh, for anything because of Last Action Hero. It was PCU because it was such a weird script. Anyway, it's a good lesson for the aspiring writer that writing something that's, that's offbeat and doesn't get made it's far from a failure. It often is the key to a career. Yeah. You're just trying to find a key to open a door. And, and also you have, when you're just starting out, you have this great opportunity to, to write that kind of thing. You know, if, if everything goes right, you know, four years later, you don't have the opportunity to spend a year, you know, th- you know, turning a, a, a bar joke into a, you know, into a movie. W- what's so fun about these movies that, that like, being John Malkovich might be kind of like that too. It was also kind of written around the time, that time around, you know, 1997. They're just really fully realized versions of really crazy ideas. You know I mean? What's kind of amazing about them is the investment in the idea. Like one movie that was made those years was similar to this was Strictly Ballroom, which I think kind of inspires a lot of this and that it was such a, and I'm sure there's other movies, but for me, Strictly Ballroom was a movie that I was watching. And every minute of was, I, I was like, I can't believe this is actually happening. I can't believe they're taking ballroom dancing this seriously. I can't believe they built these sets, that they hired these actors, that they, you know what I mean? That they all like are talking about this, like that this much work went into this idea and it, and it kind of makes the idea amazing. I don't know. It's something, something to that. You guys both highlight this time where, for lack of a better word, it was just the market was wide open. It was kind of wild, wild west. There's, you know, spec scripts being bought. I mean, is that what it's like today in the future business? No, that is not what it's like. Um, it's, you know, it's a very different world now. You know, obviously, there's a lot less movies getting made uh, by the studios. So there's a lot less development. And there's, you know, as everybody knows, there's mostly superhero movies getting made and science fiction and IP, which, you know, luckily for me happens to be my forte, but, but it is really limited uh, the types of movies that get made. And, and even in terms of specs that sell, which you still hear about occasionally, it's not like it was then where people were desperately looking for original screenplays. So 
you know, people are what used to be like every week would competitively be buying a hot spec. You know, it, it was like every week there was a winner. It's a very different climate right now. And there's less studios. I mean, I'm writing something for Fox now that was left over from when they were actually Fox. Uh, I didn't realize that they were going to be Disney by the time I got around to writing it. So, yeah. And it seems like a lot of the the storytelling and the progression of the story has gone into the episodic side of the the business. But I mean, where do you see the pros and cons of this kind of the, the shrinking of the feature film? I mean, what would you like to see as we go forward and how would you like to see movies change and evolve from where we've kind of gotten to today? First of all, there's been a huge explosion in amazing TV. And I think if you're a writer, I mean, I don't particularly care I just want to write something and create it and see it get made. You know, to me, the problems in the feature business have definitely been offset by the explosion in television. I mean, there's so much good TV on now. That said, it definitely feels like the feature business is heading in a direction that's, you know, that's so oriented towards the international market that I think it's, it's unclear what the movie business is going to be like 10 years from now. Although I will point out that every year people predict that, you know, movies are over. All anyone wants to see are the Avenger sequels. And then a movie like get out will come out or, you know, American sniper will make $600 million or whatever. So I think people still really do want to see movies and they want to see a wide variety of them. I mean, Crazy Rich Asians is, you know, the number one movie of the last few weeks. So I'm not sure if I'm ready yet to admit that we're not just going through a cycle and it might come back to a point where there's a lot more variety in movies. But I also think you got to look at what the independent movies are as well. And a lot of what's happened is the interesting movie making has shifted from the studios to more independent companies. And that's fine. I mean, who cares as long as it's getting made? I think the big change has been in the distribution and, and the, the whether people see it in a the theater, see it at home, because a lot of the movies that, you know, maybe five years ago, we were all lamenting that there were there were no comedies being made. And, and you know, so many genres were, were sort of just kind of wiped off. There was only animation, superheroes, and horror. And that was all that you could really see in a multiplex. But now if you turn on Amazon or Netflix, you know, there are all of these, what used to be like a $30 million movie. I don't know if that was what they really cost, but you know what I mean? Like all those new line movies and all that, you know, you know, you know what I mean, Zach? It's like all the, all the, um, you know, the Adam Sandler movies, you know, all the things, th th there's just been a migration of where you saw these things, but somehow Adam Sandler is still making, you know, a movie or two a year. Right. Well, he's making a lot of movies. A lot of movies. Yeah. But, you know, we're not seeing them on a Friday night at the multiplex. Right. And look, Universal and New Line are still trying to make those movies and, you know, occasionally uh, very successful with it. So uh, it's not as dead as people say, but it is true that it's a much tougher business for screenwriters. Um, oh, yeah. I'm on the on the Writers Guild uh, board of directors and we just did a survey and pretty much everybody is shifting into, there's very few people who are only screenwriters. Very few. I mean, a shockingly small amount of the people writing in Hollywood don't write for television. Right. I heard that there's 400 scripted shows in production. Is that, is that true? That I think it's that, more than that. Yeah. I, I mean, that, 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 that's unheard of. I feel like 15 years ago, there were 80 scripted shows. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. And also, you know, Netflix and Amazon. I mean, Netflix is making a $190 million movie right now. So, I mean, which I don't totally understand why they're making right. a Right, where that money's, yeah. Uh, if it's going to be streaming, but they are. So that's a crazy shift in the way we consume things. It's like, where do you think this like hunger for, for episodic TV, for that long form story, like where's that coming from? I think you could stop that at hunger for story. People like watching stories. I mean, my kids don't go to the movies the way that we did. And they don't even go to the way movies, the way kids 10 years ago did. They really are not, it's just not part of their regular life, but 
they watch a ton of TV shows because there's so much good stuff to watch. And they just like a good story well told. It doesn't really matter if you're watching it on, you know, a tablet or a larger television. I mean, it's a bummer to see them sitting in front of a large screen TV watching the show on their phone, which often happens. But either way, people like their stories. I, I feel like I sound like an old woman saying it. they like the stories, but they do. And however they can get them, they're going to get them. So you could go back a long way. I mean, Charles Dickens used to be the most popular writer writing serialized content. So it's not shocking that that's still a very popular format. Yeah. And, and when the story um, has you engaged, it, it's a treat to get to have six hours of it or 12 hours of it. You know, it's like, the Jack Ryan thing, you know, we watched Clear and Present Danger, right? We all loved that, you know, 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, this is just, you know, when you in the middle, when you're invested, this just stretches it out for six hours. And it can, it, you know, if it can, if it can sustain that, it can, it can sustain that, you know? And uh, so, you know, why, why not give people six hours of it? Right. I mean, the, the one thing is that there is a very different experience to seeing a movie in a theater with a group of people, you know, the idea of communal watching, you know, some people will say, Oh, well, Twitter makes it like that. And I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, there is still a fundamental difference between watching something that's meant to be consumed by yourself and the group experience of watching the movie. Those are two different things. And I hope they both survive, but it's clear that the former is getting more and more popular because it's instant and you can watch it now. If you like it, you can watch a lot of it. So I think it would be a real bummer if that ever went away entirely, the communal experience, right? I mean, you feel that electricity from other people in the room and it really adds to the experience. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, the best part of, of hearing these amazing stories is sharing them with the people in the same room. So let's just hope that that, that part of the business uh, continues. <laughs> Well, there's some, there's some things like horror or comedy, which are fantastic to see in a group. You know, I mean, it, it, you feed off the energy of the other people being surprised and reacting together. But then there's some things like, you know, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I think, you know, you don't need to see in a big, you know, on a giant screen. Like that might not be as, that might not be an additive experience to see that in a communal way. Certain genres, you know, it's like kind of no surprise that the Woody Allen movies I'm enjoying wonderfully on Amazon. You know what I mean? Like I didn't need to see Wonder Wheel, you know, in a theater. It's almost an intimate experience. You know, I'm happy to watch that with my computer on my lap. That sounded dirty. <laughs> <laughs> we, we Me and my wonder wheel <laughs> of all the movies. <laughs> we definitely will not edit that out. Okay. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> Let's just talk about Wonder Wheel. Yeah, Wonder Wheel. So moving along, you know, you guys both are known as script doctors in, in Hollywood. Uh, Zach, you work with other writers uh, teaching classes at the university. Like, what's the most common mistake you see in storytelling uh, when, when you come to, to tackle a script? I mean, what, what are some of the, the things that are, are most common that are just, just mistakes that people make on a, on a regular basis? I mean, believe it or not, I'd say it's not having a full story, not even having three acts at, at a minimum. I'll often read a script, and when I really analyze it, I'll realize there's really only two big twists in this movie uh, for the main character, and that's it. And that's pretty bad. You, you should be able to get over that. I, I would say that quite often, also somewhat shockingly to me, people don't really know what the genre of movie that they're making, they, they don't actually know what it is. Like if you ask them, well, is this a horror movie? Is this an action movie? What kind of movie is it? And this is on a movie that should be, I'm not talking about, like, I don't, you know, go up to Todd's salons and ask him that, you know, you're working on these giant movies and you realize, you know, one person will say horror movie and the other person will say action movie. And it's right there. You no wonder the script is a mess because, you know, those are two wildly different structures. So uh, that comes up more than you might think where you read a script and say, What's actually the what's the story here? Can somebody pitch me the story? And to think how easily I just pitched fish out of water. You know, if you're working on a superhero movie and you can't pitch it easily, you know, just the fundamental premise, you you know, that's not a good sign. There's so many; it's hard to know where to start. But um, you know, blowing your twist too early in the movie, like a very 
I mean, one of the really stupid things about the way screenwriting and the movie business are set up is that people read the first 30 pages of a script to decide whether or not they want to make it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. The most important part is the last 30 minutes of a movie. So, you know, how the audience walks out of the theater is what's key. And everyone spends so much time and you get so many notes on the first half of a script. And you just, you kind of, often I say like, shouldn't we just be focusing on what the audience is going to care about, which is how we're going to pay all this off? I mean, this is, that's the scene I wrote to get you all to read the script. Now let's talk about what's actually going to go into the movie to make it a success. Often when I'm given a script um, and, and there's a problem with it, well, the reason why I'm given it is because somebody wants to make it because it has something that they really like. And what they really like is the premise. It's page 15, page 30. I get to it and I go, oh, I, like, I'll just go, crap, crap, crap. And then I'll get to page 30 and aliens will invade the, the science fair of the school. And I'll go, oh, I get it. That's why they want it. It's about, you know, that's why somebody sold it. Like once the movie tells you its concept, that's when the studio and the business part of it and the producers, they're all excited about it. But they kind of see the the the, the playing out of that story. That's like journeyman work to them. Like they don't like, even though that you have to be inspired and maybe the movie never even comes up with a great ending, you know, but they kind of don't see that be, as being the most important part of the movie. Ironically, they think it's just what the premise is. But but it is for them what the pre, you know the premise is what they're going to put on the poster, not the ending being fulfilling. You know what I mean? So they kind of like dump that. That's kind of like left to the writer. And sometimes it happens. Sometimes you see these movies with you know just resolution after resolution. It's all awkward, and you know what I mean. It's all yeah, like look, and the premise is vitally important because you can't if you can't cut a trailer or a thirty second spot to sell your movie you're in trouble and you shouldn't be making it for a lot of money. So it's a completely valid way to look at things. In fact, it's when you talk about people not knowing the genre, the idea, like I cut a trailer of movies that I'm going to write for myself. I have somebody do like a rip reel. So I kind of know where I'm going. The idea that you would, you know, venture into something, particularly something really expensive without a sense of how it's going to be presented um, and, and, you know, there are exceptions to this rule. Steven Spielberg doesn't oper operate that way, but that's because he doesn't have to. But for most people, you really need to, you need to be able to say, okay, well, this is how we're going to sell it. And then to get it, what Mark's saying, it, it's one thing if you have the setup, but if the premise doesn't get paid off in a series of awesome ways, then your trailer will just be the premise and that's it. And people walk out very disappointed. So so, you know, it's really is about, yes, you need a, you need a great premise and then you really need to pay it off and, and you need to show people that this idea that you've presented to them is going to turn into a story that they actually want to watch, um, which is kind of obvious, but you'd be surprised how often it seems to get forgotten during the process. Especially in big movies, you know, it, it would be almost like personal movies, small movies, art house movies, usually, you know, Oscar movies usually build to, towards a, you know, wonderful, majestic ending. But studio movies so often, it's like just a, just a, a collage at the end of, of, of wrap ups. And it's always sort of amazing when you see a studio movie, you know, with like, I thought, you know, Zach, I thought your movie last summer, um, you know, Ready Player One, I thought that had a great ending. But, you know, you see sometimes like, uh, like, Toy Story has a great ending, you know what I mean? And we're all surprised. It's like we're amazed when a studio movie has a majestic ending. Yeah, well, one thing I'll, I'll jump in about is from having worked on a lot of superhero movies, so many superhero movies end with this person punching that person until that person falls down. Mark once described a very popular movie as monsters chasing monsters. The end of so many movies nowadays are heroes punching villains. and it's inherently pretty uninteresting. You know, I mean, particularly if you've seen six scenes like that already. And one of the things that's pretty brilliant about Spielberg, you know, across his career, and, and it's go back and watch any of the Jurassic Park that he did, any of the ones that he did, or Indiana Jones, the set pieces are very different. If, if one scene is hand-to-hand -hand combat, the next scene is suspense. And if that scene is suspense, the next one is comedic. And if that one is comedic, the next one is a character payoff. And, you know, when you look at the end of Ready Player One, for example, I, I wish I could take credit for all of it, but a lot of it is him 
making sure that if there's a chase going on, that there's also something very intimate going on and that there's also a payoff on a character level that's much more important than any of that. And just because you're making an action movie doesn't mean you don't have to do all that. Tell me about that, Zach. I mean, does that come out of his head or is he like really methodical? I mean, is he like post-it noting these different elements or, you know, using note cards or whatever you might use? I mean, is it that thought out? No. Well, I'm the one using, you know, in that one, I'm the one using note cards. It's more that he'll come up with these ideas that he isn't, it's completely intuitive. He'll just, he'll have an idea like the shining sequence, the idea of putting it in the shining and some of the specifics of it came from me and Ernie Klein, but the kind of overall, some of the specific gags and the feel of the overall sequence was something that he had in his head that for a long time, I just thought wasn't going to work. And it took us a really long time to figure out what it was. And then once you see it, you're, you realize, oh, this is what Stephen was talking about the whole time. I just, you know, it just took me a long time to fill in all the blanks, you know, where he needed them. So there is a lot of intuition going on. I mean, he doesn't, he kind of counts on the writer. I mean, that's one of the great things about working for him is he is a great collaborator. So he counts on you. He'll, he'll come up with a great idea and you kind of say, I trust you because you're Steven Spielberg. And then he'll say, okay, but now you have to make it work for me. So go off and write it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And, uh, but I don't think he, I've asked him about it. He doesn't consciously sit there saying, oh, this set piece is this. So the next set piece should be that. It's just the way his mind works. You guys both are very celebrated in your careers and you know a lot about uh, story and structure. And there's a lot of other people in Hollywood that also, you know, we could put in that category. Like, you know, the, the question I have is like, why do we have, if, if we know this, if we know that it's so important to have payoff and that people are going to walk out disappointed, like why, why do we have bad movies? Like, how does that happen? It's the process and it's a very collaborative process. And there are, I mean, every book you pick up, every, every Hollywood memoir or every, you know, any book written by screenwriter, director, movie star, studio chief is going to talk about how, you know, some movie, you know, came together by all this fortuitous accidents, you know, that they had the right actor, had the right note, had the right new ending, you know, that like, like all this. And conversely, the, the movies fall apart because, the, the, the wrong actor had the wrong idea and the wrong manager told the act writer he had to do blank and the writer did it because he didn't want to lose the job and the director was lazy or was only doing the job for the money. I mean, there's like a million, you know, there's like a million reasons. It's almost like that Tolstoy, you know, the Anna Karenina, you know, didn't that start with like all movies are bad um, in their own way or something like that? Yeah, all families. All, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I would say most things are bad. Like, just think about it. most, this applies not just to art, but even products. It applies to, you know, if most things were good, it would be, the world would be a totally different place. The truth is it's hard to make something good. And, and that's, if you look at any art form, it's not like most paintings that people paint are not great. Most of them are terrible. And then some of them are good. And once in a while, someone paints something great. And a movie is is like a painting that has to be painted by 2000 people over the course of many years. So it's actually extremely hard to make a really good movie. Now that said, there's, there's like a, you know, as they say in baseball, the Mendoza line, there's a line of bad that a movie ought to be able to get over uh, for the most part. But to the question of why are movies not better, they've never really been better. Most of them have always sucked. You just remember the ones that are good. So it, it, it's not surprising to me that it, so few movies fail to be great because it requires, as Mark said, everything going right for a movie to be great. But I'll also say this. I think that when you look at, there's a reason why animated movies are in general far, the line in animated movies, it's so rare that you see an animated movie that totally sucks, that has a complete structural problem and doesn't work from start to finish. And that's because of the way they're made. You make them and then you remake them and you remake them and you watch them over and over again. That is tremendously helpful. And that's why, you know, Pixar has such a good track record. With movies, so often you shoot it, you have one chance, you shoot it, you cut it, and that's what you've got. And maybe you do some reshoots, but if you made some mistake or something went wrong or you cast the wrong person and you know what I mean? Like that's what you're stuck. 
No, and it's like it's like I was thinking just with Neil Simon dying, you know, that that the idea of what a play, the workshopping, that a play, that the writer watches the play in front of an audience night after night for months, perfecting it, you know, before the play is even finished. And a screenwriter, you know, writes it, has a table read, another writer fix, you know what I mean? Like, like it's, 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 uh, it's not workshopped, you know, it is it, and an animated movie in a way, like what Zach is saying, an animated movie is, is, is workshopped. Yeah. Heavily. I mean, it's basically, it is like a yeah. play, I mean, you know, on something like Osmosis Jones for the animation. And by the way, on Ready Player One as well, uh, you know, we go through those sequences and watch them together you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of times before we settle on the end product. And you just can't do that with live action. Although notably, Woody Allen reshoots a lot of his movies. You know, he he will often shoot a whole bunch of a movie and then go back and figure it out and reshoot it again. Right. Which is, which is it, it seems odd that, you know, I was I was really surprised when I first started working in movies that, actors that the rehearsal process was so small that you know the actors would get together for a weekend or a week maybe and that was you know if the director was powerful and the artists loved I'm sorry the actors loved the material but for most um you know uh commercial movies the actors have a lunch or, or dinner with the director before and then they just start shooting the movie the next day so there's like it's like a uh it's really strange that there's this much investment and there isn't like a six month workshopping of the, of, of the actors and the scripts and round tables and performances and working out the scenes. It's just, it's just like the, 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 the economics of the situation and the personalities involved just don't have room for that, have room to, to take it to that level. But sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll hear like, you'll see like a, you'll hear that like on spotlight, I'm just throwing out a movie, you know, that like they worked for three months together on, you know what I mean? Rehearsing, you know, you, you always hear that about like a small movie that's incredible, but never about a big movie. <laughs> Unless maybe it's Ridley Scott wants to do it that way, and and you know, the actor agrees. It sounds like the deck is stacked against the screenwriter when it comes to to writing a feature, and, and not just the screenwriter, but the entire team. Versus, I mean, I do remember uh, when we were working on Osmosis Jones. I mean, every day walking those halls and the stories up on the wall, and people are moving that thing around like a a puzzle, and and adding things and, and changing things constantly. You just have that. Uh, luxury to do that, but you know, not so much so as you mentioned when you're meeting the director for a, a, a glass of wine and then going right to the shoot. Right, and you're seeing the rhythm of the story too. So you really—that's the crucial thing—is that when you get to see, even if it's just storyboards. I mean, nowadays we do like really advanced previs that looks great, but back then, even even when you see cut together storyboards with temp voice it's so much clearer what's working and what's not than when you just put it on a page. And it's such a luxury to be able to sit there and say, yeah, this, wait, what is this scene? You know, that's a good line and that's a good moment, but why, why do we even have this scene here? What's it doing? And you can feel it. You get to that scene and it just doesn't fit in the overall cut, even though you're just watching scratch drawings with some bad voiceover it becomes immediately apparent. And, you know, you try to do that on the page and you, you know, sometimes you succeed, but it's very hard for that to make it all the way through the process, so. Well, I think uh, the both of you just single-handedly uh, fixed the the movie business. So we'll have to make sure that people employ the, do the rehearsals and, and work on the, the project a little longer method rather than just going to shoot and, and put it out to the world. Can you guys both tell me the role that backstory plays in your writing? Like the like the the particular character's backstory, or or my very colorful backstory. Well, both, both. I you know I th I think how you approach backstory in terms of character development, uh, in terms of uh, oh. you know, story development, coming up with a character and figuring out sort of what a character needs, what he needs to go through, what he, you know his growth. It's very much like writing a a a. a, a a psychoanalytic portrait of somebody. Now, I never read Freud's The Rat Man, but I know that he wrote something called Rat Man. But I'm, I'm trying to say that uh, I think the backstory is what makes up a character's um, psychological baggage. It, it's every writer has a different way of thinking of what a character needs. Uh, I sometimes often think of it as what his flaw is, you know, and uh, 
the flaw is rooted in we have this Freudian view flaw is rooted in youth and uh, in, in, in youth and experience. Screenwriting isn't based on a Jungian world where, where characters flaws based on the ether and archetypal, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying that that's all wrong, that Jung was wrong, but it's based on like experiential empirical, you know, I was molested, you know, I'm a little girl, I was molested and now I'm going to kill the, 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 the judge who didn't sentence the accuser. You know what I mean? Like backstory is the, is the motivation of character because we live in a world where we believe that uh geez i I don't want to get into a debate of nature versus nurture but um i think hollywood believes that it's nurture and you're saying you believe that it's nature well no i mean obviously it's both i I, we could we could there have been a couple books written about this but um if it's nurture hollywood wants to know where the nurture was i.e what the backstory was so, so I, you know, I have a, I have a, I have a very good idea what the backstory is because it's, it's the shorthand we use to explain who characters are now. You know, you, you, you say, oh, this guy, you know, the guy who's painting my house, he's a great guy. You know, he was a gang, he was a gangbanger and he was in prison, but you know, now he works with kids and uh, they come, he brings the kids and they all paint my house. Like I just gave you backstory. Now you know who he is. Now you know where he's from. Now you know, you have a sense of him, you know, from just a sentence or two of backstory. That's right on. By the way, nobody's painting my house right now. <laughs> I, I was I was looking at how badly it needs painting as I as I riffed on that. Okay. <laughs> Zach, well, I mean, I hate to be disagreeable, Please. but um, <laughs> me, what defines character is action. It's what they do in the story. Well, I was going to say that too, but he asked about backstories. Like, I well, I'm, I'm going to just be honest. Okay, you? and I know Mark. I, I, I know the action part too. I was just trying to say something, but go I on. Know, I know you're trying to be nice about backstory, but let me, <laughs> here's what I, here's my feeling about okay. backstory. That often the idea that one should know the full backstory of their characters, which is not what Mark is saying, by the way, and I've worked with him. I know that I know that he knows this too, that quite often first you figure out what does this character do? What is what are they going to do? What choices are they going to make in this movie? And the question of what motivated those choices in some movies, you don't even need to know. I mean, in fact, quite a few movies work precisely because you don't know what their backstory is. But in movies where it's important to know the backstory, the backstory has to be informed by the actual meat of the movie. Like this is what Ryan Gosling's character is going to do and drive. And therefore, this is what you need. This is all you need to know about him in order to understand by the end how he's arrived at this place. And I do think that quite often in movies and in TV shows as well, uh, although less so, you know, people will give a speech or there'll be a whole bunch of backstory to kind of explain, oh, this is why we did all this stuff. But the truth is, you should really know what your story is first and then make sure that the backstory that you've come up, that's my opinion, that the backstory should then fit this great story that you've come up with. And, and really the best backstories are ones that make you kind of fill in the blanks where, where you watch a movie and you wonder, you know, that you, you have some details about who this person was, but it's really from watching the movie that you come to understand who the character is. As opposed to, you know, like the, to me, it's, you know, my father died when I was 11. You know, it's, it's that speech that you get that's supposed to explain. Here's why the plot doesn't make any sense. Because my dad died when I was 11 and he hated tape and, you know, whatever. So, so I think one of the things people have to be very careful with, with backstory, is that it should come from story. Backstory should be a reflection of story. And, and in my opinion, not the other way around. It's often used as motivation. You know, you mentioned like my father, you know, like in Twister, remember, she gives this cheesy speech where she says her dad was killed by a twister and that's why she hates twisters. And so backstory was like used to explain why a character is motivated in a way that doesn't make any sense without the backstory. That's always sort of a bad sign. Well, right. I mean, that's a great example of, Everybody hates twisters. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't need to have your dad. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, I remember looking around when that in the theater when you said that, going, "Is this, can, is this actually happening?" No. Well, I don't know if you remember when I worked on Reign of Fire, but <laughs> but 
one of the things that they had was, you know, it was a movie set where dragons had basically killed everybody in the world. And one of the characters, you know, the, they had this speech where the character said, told the story about a dragon killing his brother. And I was just like, I wanted Christian Bale's character to say, okay, a dragon killed everyone. You know, that's so it's like on Walking Dead. Don't tell me a story about how, you know, oh, your daughter was killed by zombies. Everybody was killed by zombies. Like that's, we all hate them. You don't have to explain that. But I think Twister is a great example of one of the, you know, a notoriously silly backstory in a movie. But unquestionably, you know, in a great story, the backstory, you know, Chinatown is is a movie where the mystery of the backstory makes every, changes everything, you know, um, and and obviously great writers do that very, very well. But but you'd be surprised how often, well, no, you wouldn't be maybe, but I really feel like it's a good lesson for writers. Make sure that story comes first and then make sure your backstory serves it. Yeah, it was really kind of like a cliched note. I remember 20 years ago hearing a lot like, what's their backstory? Like they would ask, like in screenwriting class, people would talk about, you need to know their backstory. And uh, it, it, it kind of, it, that was sort of in theory, but in practice, it doesn't really come up unless it's, you know, like, unless you're using it like in Chinatown as a twist, as something that you've been given one version of the backstory and that this, and, and that the, the truth has been suppressed. And, you know, when that comes out, it's a big moment. Right. Well, I, if I can just add, maybe say something positive, you know, some of the best movies ever made are about inconsistent backstory. Yeah. If you look at Unforgiven, that, that's... I was a, just thinking that, yeah. In and which every Kane. character's backstory is a lie, uh, it has been exaggerated, except for Clint Eastwood's, which is even worse than you think. You know, that he's the only person who's not lying. He's actually playing down how badass he was and how how you know, what an evil person he was. Everyone else is trying to, you know, come off that way, but you f keep finding out that they're lying. And there are a lot of good examples of great movies like that where what it's playing, Quentin Tarantino does that in Reservoir Dogs. Everybody's telling stories, none of which are true, or only some of which are true. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Same thing with Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight has a little bit of that. Yeah. So, so does, um, what is it? Uh, Citizen Kane, right? Citizen Kane is all about backstory, hidden backstory. Yeah, I guess backstory is, you know, you're in trouble when your own, when your main character is, is telling people his backstory around a campfire the night before the climax. But if you have a character's, if you, but like an Unforgiven, if you have people whispering about what the backstory might be or what the rumors are of the backstory, you're a little bit closer to being in a better spot. I, I think that's a great point, Mark. I think when, you know, right there, that's a great piece of writing advice is when other characters need to know your character's backstory and are curious about it and desperate to find out you've written an interesting character. That's when you know you've got the audience. So we've talked a lot about uh, movie business, uh, backstory. What are you guys most excited for now? Well, I always like Yom Kippur because of the food and the leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, you've always been very honest. Yeah. I'm also, I'm also excited for, for Zach's uh, um, 50th birthday coming up this month. For my part, I'm, I'm writing a bunch of things I'm excited about. I've really just had the best experience of my career, uh, the, the kind of experience I waited my whole career to have. And Mark can tell you, I, I've been through some tough situations with my own screenplays. So I feel incredibly fortunate to have gone, you know, to have gotten to work with Spielberg for four years of my life and uh, on a movie that, you know, I, I really enjoy and I'm really proud of. So it's definitely given me some distance that I didn't have before in terms of just, I just want to do something else good at this point. I feel a lot less pressure and a lot more sense of, I just want to get a chance to work with good people and make something good that I can be proud of. And I'm a little bit less, focused honestly on what what's coming next and uh i i think that came from like just reminding myself each day show some gratitude look where you are look what's happening this is what you were complaining about to mark hyman 23 years ago uh, or whatever 
about how, why couldn't this ever happen? Why did you end up with the biggest jerk in Hollywood, you know, working with you? And I just tried to remind myself every day, okay, I have nothing to complain about. So enjoy it. I have also sort of, I, I've mellowed a little bit in terms of, I, I haven't had a great success uh, in a long time that, that has uh, made me think, okay, well, I'm, I'm, this part of my life is satisfied. So I'm still looking for that. I'm still looking for that big success in features that then makes me go, Hey, that wasn't fulfilling, you know, but, uh, but uh, I, I, I haven't had it, but what has been really um, nice has been working on a lot of movies for kids that whether I get credit on them or I don't get credit on them, or I even just sell a pitch or it gets made or not getting made, but trying to put things out into the world that I would want children to see that I want just, just little messages into the world um, and seeing kind of uh, it maybe is your, your role to, um, to maybe not sometimes control a whole story, but maybe uh, every now and then a talking dog gives a speech that you think, wow, I, 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 I there's, there's some kid out there that that uh, helps. And um, one kind of osmosis Jones, you know, an epilogue on the whole experience is I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but now I have like friends of my teenage daughter will come up to me and say it's their favorite movie or they loved it when they were kids. Or I, I mean, I've, I've honestly, Zach, this would make you happy. It made me so happy. A, a, a kid came up to me who had, was a friend, a football player at my daughter's high school that had heard that I had written the movie. And he said, you know, I, I loved that movie so much because it was about a, uh, a black guy. There weren't a lot of animated movies on The Lion King about black guys, but this was about a, like, or, you know, I've heard like kids that have been become interested in medicine or have learned about the human body through the movie. And so these weird little things that, that um, kind of start to add up. Hopefully by the time I'm 70, there will be a lot of them. You know, a lot of the, sort of the feeling that, um, that you know, peace things have been put out into the world that have, that have affected people in some way, in a, in a positive way. I didn't used to care about that, but I care about that now for some reason. I care about it. Yeah. And I have, I have this same experience too. I mean, like people all the time talk about Osmosis Jones and, and say it's like one of their favorite movies or they showed it in science class and exactly. I'm just always just, you know, blown away. And they've shown and it to a generation of kids in science class. And it's so funny because it's kind of a good lesson for just the three of us, because when that movie failed at the box office, like, I mean, it's silly to say I was devastated over it like a death, but, but it was devastating. You know, it took years you know what I mean? To like move through. And, uh, and so, you know, you think something is like the worst that could happen and then you don't realize, well, they're out in the world. And then 20 years later you have, you know, people saying that they, uh, you know, learned and that they, that, that, that yeah, that's one of the real advantages of having a failure right off the bat with me with last action hero is by the time I got to osmosis Jones, I remember thinking, this is a good movie. I'm going to be psyched to show my kids. I'm going to be psyched to watch this down the line. And, you know, obviously nobody was happy. Also, the fact that Iron Giant, as you'll notice, Mark, I worked pretty hard to get Iron Giant to, uh, into Ready Player One. Iron Giant suffered a very similar fate. So I kind of felt, even at the time, like, yeah, this is just a bad roll of the dice, but this is a movie I'm definitely going to look back on fondly. And I agree. I mean, I encounter it all the time, um, you know, because I was just the producer, you know, I don't get it as much. But whenever it comes up or someone will say something about it, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I produced that movie. I actually really produced that movie. I was actually there for the whole thing. No, it's really gratifying. And and whenever you make something good, it, it does come back to you. I mean, it really does. Eventually, people find it and talk about it, and it's satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever you make something good, it just comes back to you. I like and that. And that's our backstory. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Well, that's it. Thank you for joining us on that stroll down memory lane. And thank you for listening and your continued support. Please send your comments, ideas, and questions to podcast at wildstory.com. I make time to answer every email. We've linked to all the movies mentioned in the show notes. And I want you to think back to Zach's lesson about how easy it is to pitch fish out of water. Many brands suffer from this principle too. So what we're always looking to do is distill our brand and our brand essence into a very clean movie tagline. Big idea. Also, take note of Zach's note about focusing on the audience. What do they care about and how to pay this all off? The equivalent would be, how does your product or service pay off for the audience? What's the feeling that you're delivering? I think these movie principles are very transferable and applicable 
to brand storytelling and your business. And some of my favorite memories of these two guys, well, as we're producing Osmosis Jones, we were getting into the final stretch and we did what was called a comedy punch-up where there's a round table of comedians and the comedians get paid to come in and just give jokes. And one of those comedians was Patton Oswalt as he was getting started in his career and he couldn't have been funnier. Uh, the Fairley brothers were there and that was just this vivid memory I have of spending an entire day with this, I can't believe I'm in the room, pinch me is this real feeling. Also, Zach sold me my very first real cool speaker system, his old Bose mini cube system, and I'll always, always remember that. And then one last memory, as Mark and I were on one of our usual lunch breaks, we were strolling around the Beverly Connection, and we walked into the pet store, and he introduced me to this new up-and-coming comic named Sarah. Turned out to be Sarah Silverman holding a puppy. We, we spoke for about 20 minutes, and he told me that she was going to be really famous someday, that she was really, really funny. And look at her now. So again, I want to thank you for listening to the show. The show wouldn't be possible without you, the listener. And please, if you have a moment, you can really, really help the show out by downloading and subscribing on iTunes and leaving a five-star review. Well, that's it for today's show. Until next time. Thanks, guys. That was awesome. Guys, thank you, Mark. Yeah, you guys, I, I literally could sit and just chat about this stuff for like hours. I'll have to come back and we'll just have to go to Cantor's and, and hang out. Hell, you guys should come to my Yom Kippur. Oh, is it going to be better. just a, is it going to be a thing? It's going to be, yeah. It, well, you know, I, 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 you know, I spend over $300. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to sign off now, guys. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business. 